today about the topic of encouragement for real life. Encouragement for real life. And when I talk about real life, how many of you this week have had something that you are, you're anxious about? There are a few of you. How many of you this week have had circumstances that um, you're not sure how they're going to turn out that, that affect you, many of you? How many of you have some things that, that cause you to stay awake at night that are, that are taking place? Okay, then this, this is the right message for the right day. Uh, it was interesting. We've got kids that raised their hand for all of those. I don't know what's going on in their lives, but... Uh, I pray that, that God will be able to minister to them as well. If you have your Bibles, I would, I would love it if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And, and the text today is lengthy, and I'm going to read all of it. Uh, it's not that I'm going to preach on every verse, but there are some themes that develop out of this that are going to be really important for us today. Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to start with verse 18. And I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. And, Sometimes it's important to do this just so that we can catch the context. Sometimes we, we preach on a verse or two and we, we kind of miss the context of what the thing is about. And I want to be able to put this in context for you. Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adop adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God's work for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purposes... For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take your word, which is life-giving to us, which is the bread of life, and that you would nourish us with it in such a way that it reaches us exactly where we are at in real life. Father, we are not pretend. We come before you recognizing that we are weak and frail and we desperately need an infusion of your strength and your power. And Father, we ask that that be given to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, spirit-filled believers, because we're part of a Pentecostal church, we have a great confidence that when we come to the Lord in prayer, He has the ability, He is able to change our circumstances. That's why at the end of services and even sometimes during services, we pray for people that God would bring healing to their body to change the circumstances of their physical condition. We pray for deliverance. We pray for miracles. We pray for provision. But as we do that, there are times, in fact, sometimes when we pray, God chooses not to give us what we're asking for. There are times He chooses not to give us the way, uh, the answer to prayer, the way that we would desire it. And we often, as as spirit-filled believers, we who believe that God can and will and desires to change things, are ill-prepared when God hears our prayer and says no. Or we are ill-prepared when God hears our prayer and tells us to wait, that He's going to delay. And we have a marvelous text of Scripture which undergirds our faith in a time when circumstances are not dealing us a fair hand, when we are going through things that we believe is not fair or we don't understand and we don't know how things are going to happen and we don't know how it's going to turn out. And through the, the hands that were lifted today, there are numbers of you that are in places where there's various anxieties and there are various nervous things that have caused you and we're wondering why God isn't changing things and for now he's saying wait or for now he's saying no. What we do not understand, that I believe that the Word of God today wants to reveal to us, is that it very well may be that it's in these moments when we feel out of control, when we feel helpless in our circumstances, that God is at work to produce something in us that only a trial can do. In Italy, Orson Welles said that for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare and terror and murder and bloodshed. But it was in that period of time, under that kind of persecution, they produced Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. He said, similarly, in Switzerland, they had brotherly love and 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did those 500 years produce from the Swiss? The cuckoo clock. The question we ask ourselves today is this. What is it 
that the difficulties that you may be facing in your life, what are they producing in you? What is it that God wants to bring out of you? Paul, in this marvelous text of Scripture, uses words that, honestly, we live in an America today where I have heard people proclaim and preachers proclaim words that many would find offensive in the way that Paul talks about them. He uses words like suffering. He uses words like frustration. He uses words like groaning and weakness and trouble and hardship. And there is a gospel that is being proclaimed today in parts of our nation and parts of our world that says that if God is really in control, that we will be exempt from all of these things. But that is not scriptural. So how do we handle these things? What do we do with this? Why do we suffer? Have any of you ever asked God, why is this going on in my life? Have any of you ever woke up in the morning thinking, Lord, what are you going to do today? Because I don't see a way out. I don't understand it. I have questions. Why, oh God, am I suffering this way? I want to give you a quick answer to that as we begin to build the case for an encouragement for everyday life. And that is the reason we suffer is we're linked to two different people. First, we're linked to Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says this, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. It's because of Adam that we're dying. It's not just the act of death itself that came through Adam, but the very act of aging and pr the process of getting to death that is from Adam. It's Adam's fault, men, that we lose our hair. It's Adam's fault that you groan when you get out of bed the older you get. It's Adam's fault that we walk around with aches and pains. It's all Adam's fault because it came through him. But sometimes there are circumstances that we don't understand, such as the non-suspension by God of the law of cause and effect, which allows a drunk driver to plow into innocent people. Or all of the weird and wacky, problematic, accidental illnesses and stuff that happens in lives because we stem from a linkage with Adam. The things that we go through happen because sin is entered in the world. And because we're linked with Adam, we go through these things. Second, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it tells us that we as believers will likewise go through difficult because we're linked with Jesus. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, it says, in fact, in fact, there's a fact to this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That persecution may take more subtle forms within your life and perhaps even within your jobs or your families. Maybe it's decisions that you make in your own personal life that you know that were I not linked with Christ, I would make a different decision, but because of the 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 compelling nature of the Holy Spirit, I've got to do what's right even when others won't. Maybe it's in your business decisions that you make that you feel a check in your spirit to do something because the Lord is trying to keep you in a pathway of ethics that lead to your life being glorified by Him but may make you less profitable. Maybe there are some moral issues that you face that you have considered that because you would take a stand and you're going to do things a certain way that promotes Christ within your life, you've been removed from the possibility of promotion or advancement of financial blessing because you just, because of Christ within you, you said this, I'm not going to let myself walk in question. 
And maybe it's people around you that because of your relationship with Jesus Christ tease you mercilessly because they don't know what to do with you. Your very life causes them to feel a convincing power of the Holy Spirit and so they lash out at you as a result of it. And we discover that when we're going through these hard times in our life, the first question that we always ask is, why? God, why? And the New Testament forever is trying to teach us to change the view of things from asking God why to asking God the question, what? What do I do now? What do you want to produce in me? What do you want to do in my life? And so Paul gives us these words from Romans chapter 8, and he gives us four encouragements for our real life. And this is what I love about God is God doesn't paint a picture for us that that life is going to be a, a pathway of roses. We understand that just because we're in relationship with him does not exclude us from the difficulties of life, but we never walk alone. And so the first encouragement that we have, and if you have your bulletin and you want to jot down some notes, you can do so. The outline is there for you. And, and I will admit to you, even as I type this out, that this, this first encouragement doesn't sound like much of an encouragement, but you have to have a long view in order to fully understand this one, and that's this. We've got to learn to compare the coming glory to our present groaning. We have to learn to compare the coming glory to the present groaning. Paul is saying in this paragraph that we as children of God must develop the ability to not focus exclusively on the present. We must have the ability to begin to look and understand that there is something that is coming for us, ahead of us, that will be greater than anything that we are going through right now. In fact, the way he describes it is if if you could take every bad thing that's happened to you, every bad attitude that people have tried to force on you, everything that's, the, the, the questions that keep you up at night, and you put that on the scale on one side, and we'll call that your groaning. If you put that on one side, and then you were able to understand the coming glory, and frankly, we... We don't understand everything about heaven. We know what the Bible tells us about it. We know the beauty of it. We know the painlessness of it. We know the fact that it will be perfect in every way, but I don't have an ability to capture perfection because I've never seen it. And The Lord says, as children of God, you've got to be able to put everything you're going through on one side of the scale and then watch it as it's crushed by the glory that is coming for us. We are living in a world that is not our home. Even though we try to develop lifestyles as best we can here, we ask God for blessing while we're here, this is not as good as it gets. There's coming for us a home that will put this to shame. And in the middle of all of that, God says, you've got to learn to not meditate so much on the groaning of what's going on, but be intrigued by the idea of what is coming. This coming glory... This that we have to look forward to is described for us in this way. Paul says, the whole created order is groaning in the pain of childbirth. It's waiting for the liberation of the children of God. Now, I have to admit to you that in my study this week, I, I, I spent a lot of time meditating on this. And there were some truths that begin to come out of this that begin to encourage my heart. Here's what you need to know. You're groaning, and and by the uplifted hands that we saw this morning, there's a lot of you that have issues that are causing you to groan. Your groaning is not there to kill you. 
your groaning and the issues that you're going through are not there to defeat you. The Bible says that because we are children of God, your groaning, your issues, the heartaches you go through, the, the, the access that we have to, to God and, and all that comes with that, all of those things are not there to kill you. They're there because God is producing a child within you. There's something new. There's new life that is being birthed in you that the only way this can come is through the birth and the pain of childbirth. As I was thinking about that, I, I have a limited understanding of childbirth. I have been blessed by God to have been created in a gender that disqualifies me from childbirth. I have sat by my wife twice and recognize I am glad God did not create me a woman as she was giving birth. I have sat in the hospital some of, with many of your families through those times. I've, I have heard the sounds coming from the birthing wing that comes from a mother that is giving birth. And while there may be the pain, the labor pains, the aches, the groans, occasionally the screams. Those things are producing a life. And I have been told that there are times when a woman may feel as if she was dying. But at the end of that, she gets to hold something that is brand new and life-giving. And I'm amazed at the ability of a woman to forget the pain the moment she holds the baby. There is something within us as believers that we need to understand that we are living in a world that is groaning. We groan. We groan under the anxiety. We groan under the pain. But it's not to kill you. God is giving birth to something through you that this pain alone is going to produce in you. And at the end of it, the pain will seem very little in comparison to the glory of what we get to see that is produced in new life. If I were to take time this morning and go across this room and ask you to honestly and transparently tell us what's going on in your life or in your heart, many of you would have to talk about the pain that you carry, the burden that you bear, or the suffering that you endure, and some of it is very private. Some of you are, are great at putting on faces that everything is okay when deep down inside there's turbulence that are at work in your heart. Some of your pain is relational. Some of it is physical. Some of it is financial. And if everybody could tell their story, there wouldn't be a dry eye in the house. When we're in an assembly such as this, it gets so easy for us as children of God to put on our church clothes and come together and smile. And when people say, how are you? Rather than going into the details of what's going on, we just say, I'm doing great. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm okay. And from time to time, we'll be honest and say, man, I've, I've been struggling this week. And Paul says to us in the middle of all of this, whatever it is that's going on on the inside, remember this, what follows the groan is not defeat, but it's birth. God is birthing something in you and in this church and in our community that he's producing. Many of you have been a part of memorial services that I've been a part of, and oftentimes when I get to the graveside, I like to, to pull out this package of seeds because on the front of this package, there's a wonderful picture of some flowers. I mean, they're beautiful, pink, white, yellow, all of them. Do you know my disappointment when I open this and those are not in there? 
that is false advertising. Because when I buy cereal, it looks the same. In fact, when you open this, what you discover is that what is in there is really dried, brown, shriveled up little things. There's nothing attractive about them. They look like they have very little hope. You wouldn't put them on anything you would eat. They're just not very attractive. But when you take those little, unattractive, shriveled up, dead seeds and you put them in the right environment, something that has been contained within them begins to burst forth. And it's within that bursting, that life-giving stage, that you take something that is dead and it bursts forth, and ultimately in the right situation, what we get is that the full potential of what has been within that kernel begins to grow, and the beauty of it gets to be seen. What we recognize in all of this is it may feel today as if you are one of those seeds that have been planted and you are uncomfortable. You plant it, it's dark, it's isolated, it's lonely, it's wet, it's cold, it's hot, but suddenly out of that burden begins to birth forth something that God has put within you that the situation you're in is the only way that he can bring forth the birth of the potential. And so your groaning is not to produce death, it's to produce life. There's a hymn writer that says this, and for those of you that have been in the church any length of time, you may know this song. He says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. There are moments when the stresses of life get so hard, we just have to sit down and say, Lord, I know I know that it seems as if this is weighting the scale, but the future glory when I see you, I will not remember any of this any longer because of the glory that you are bringing. And so encouragement for real life comes when we weigh what we're going through against the future glory. C.S. Lewis eloquently said this, hope means continually looking forward to the next world. It does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world thought the most about the next world. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they are ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. We as believers of Jesus Christ must make sure that we keep a mindset on the future glory that is to come. And so if you're living for this world only... And forgetting about the future glory, then you will always think about the anxiety rather than the reward. Secondly, the great encouragement that comes from this passage is that the Holy Spirit helps us. He says, we don't know how to pray what we ought to pray for. The Spirit is helping us in our weakness, and that's why we need His help. I find it interesting that the word know, the way it's, it's configured within Romans chapter 8, it says that we know that the whole creation is growing. In other words, we, we know the earth is, is in deep pangs of longing for the Savior. We know that. And it says in verse 28, we know that God is working everything out for our good. We know those things. And then it says in verse 26, what we don't know. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray because, and I love the honesty of that, that Paul is saying to us, listen, the reason we don't know how to pray is because we don't know what God's trying to accomplish in this. Our prayer is to escape. Our prayer is to make it easy. God's purpose in this is to do something different within us. And so he says, because we don't know how to pray, 
what happens oftentimes is that we as believers begin to try hard to fake our faith. And we provide quick answers for every dilemma. When there are moments and we just look at what's happening, and, and honestly, as your pastor, I'm going to be really, really transparent with you. Sometimes you come to me and say, these things are going on in my life, and I don't know why. Can you give me an answer? And I'm going to have to tell you, I don't have a clue. I don't know why they're happening in your life. I don't know why they're happening in my life. I don't know what God is up to. I don't even know sometimes how to pray for you in this situation, which is why as a spirit-filled believer, I'm thankful that I have the Holy Spirit. We don't know how to pray when we don't know what God is up to. And sometimes we have prayed every prayer that we know and nothing has happened. Nothing has been yielded. And Paul says that we don't know what to pray for. He doesn't mean that you don't know how to pray because he recognizes that we have you know, John 17 and Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 that gives us a model of, and form and content. But what he says is the, the groaning that we're going through, the difficult times that we're going through, is trying to produce in something that we don't know what it is and we don't know how it's going to turn out. But the Spirit knows. And he searches my heart and he knows the mind of God. And there's the connection. The Holy Spirit knows what God's up to because he is God. And he knows the mind of God because he's God. And in my prayer, in connecting with that, he begins to lead me in a pathway that gives me hope. In this passage, we are told that there's two intercessors. First of all, it's the Holy Spirit in the heart. And then it's Christ in the heavens that is always living to intercede for us. This summer, I've had the joy of being with all four of my grandkids. And I made it a point to make sure that at least one evening for each grandkid, I had a chance to walk into their room, and I watched them as they slept. They are so cute when they're asleep. They're so peaceful when they're asleep. It's so less chaotic when they're asleep. And as I stood there watching each of them, I took that moment just to pray over them, to take that moment just silently to ask God, whatever you have created them to do, whatever you want them to accomplish, I pray that the environment of their home, the environment of our family will provide you an opportunity where they have no fear to, to follow you and honor you in anything that you want to do. And as I was praying over them, I thought to myself, this is a moment I will never forget, and it's a moment they will never remember. And then the Lord said to me, and some of you need to hear this, and what you don't know, Doug, is how many times I have stood over your bed at night when you were asleep. You were filled with anxiousness. And I stood over you and I prayed over you. And I prayed that my will would be done. And I prayed strength into your life. And I prayed hope into your situation because I know what's going to happen. And in those moments... He said, you will never remember them and I will never forget them because I am your God. Simply because you are not aware that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you and that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you does not mean that he doesn't know what's going on and that he's not praying for you. Hudson Taylor said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is. The only thing that matters is what you do when you discover where the pressure lies. And this is what he meant by that. We have a tendency 
And this is where we need to grow in our faith. We have a tendency to think that if there's a pressure or an anxiety or something going on in our life, it's because God is not with us. That he somehow has removed his hand of protection from us and we begin to blame him for things. Lord, if you only knew my name or if you only... And as a result of that, the enemy begins to whisper into our ears, if God really loved you, he would take care of this for you. But since he's not, he doesn't love you. And we allow the pressure of whatever anxiety it is to get between us and the Lord and pull us apart. The Holy Spirit says when the pressure comes, my desire is that the pressure would be from the outside and that you and I are so close that it presses you against me I had a lesson about that when I rode on a train in India once and I recognized they don't have seats that are assigned and they don't have the number of people you I mean people squeezed on a train and I happened to get in there and and the person that was in front of me and I were squeezed together by the outside pressure I sure wish they had breath mints there But I thought about that and in in light of the scripture there the pressure that is on the outside of us is there so that we will be squeezed against the chest of our Savior who holds us close. The third great encouragement that comes from this is God is working for the good. It tells us we know God is working for the good. A few years ago, there was a missionary family that while they were on the field, they had their house broken into. They were severely beaten and robbed and suffered unspeakable emotional and physical and psychological injury. And when they were in the process of recovery, by which today I can tell you they have recovered well, through that process, they had to work through so many different things as they begin to relive the things that had happened in their mind again and again. But the missionary says there was one day we learned something from the Lord that helped us in this. He said, we learned to experience distinguishing between the difference of our knowings and our feelings. Our knowings and our feelings. Feelings tell us that God is not working for our good. Feelings tell us that we're all our own. Feelings tell us that we are just completely outside the range of God's help. Our knowing, we who know the word and we who know the Lord, fight against those feelings with what we know. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of this is just a great story. But because of his resurrection, because he was crucified and rose again, we stand in the knowledge that we speak in authority when we speak the word of God over our own lives. God is working for our good because he was at work in the crucifixion. It might not have looked like everything was going to turn out good when Jesus was on the cross. But we look back at it today and recognize what his burden gave to us and we recognize the great good that came from it. If that can come from a crucifixion of his perfect son, then what is he working out in you? The Lord knows sometimes I'm not working for the good. Sometimes the people around us are not working for our good either. Sometimes circumstances aren't working for good, but I've always got somebody in my corner who is working everything for my good. And then you'll notice the comprehensiveness of this statement. He said, all things. Now here's what I want you to understand about that. Whatever circumstance it was that you raised your hand for today is within the category of all things within the control of God. Whatever it is that's kept you awake at night or has kept you in this burden or in this quagmire falls within the category of all things. We recognize that taking things by themselves are not always pleasant, but when they're mixed together and under the fire of the 
events that the Lord being with us, what is produced in that is something that God is working all things together for. It's comprehensive. And then he says, the goal of the workings is for your good. It does not say, and and be very, very careful with this, it does not say that everything that happens to us is good because a lot of stuff that happens to us is not good. But the goal of everything is for good. Even the bad things can work a good purpose. Jesus, for example, did not say, thank you, God, for blessing or or for, for Lazarus dying. He didn't say that in his prayer. What he said standing before the tomb of Lazarus was, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In other words, I'm about to take a situation that's not good, and we're going to make it for good, and we're going to see your glory come out of it. Some of you feel as if there's nothing in my life and everything's going on. Nothing can be out of this that will be good. And I want you to understand today, God is at work within it to make something good out of everything that you're going through. In Enterprise, Alabama, 1951, that county lost 60% of its cotton crop to a boll weevil. The next year, that destruction was even worse than that, and it forced the farmers in that county to begin to recognize that they needed to diversify. And so in 1917, they began to plant other crops like peanuts and everything else. And within two years of that time, they had become so prosperous that they unveiled in the main square of Enterprise a statue that nobody else in the world has. It's a monument, a 10-foot-high boll weevil. It's a symbol of man's ability to adjust in adversity. The Chamber of Commerce says on the plaque at the base of the statue, in profound appreciation of the boll weevil and what it has done to herald the prosperity of our county, we erect this monument. You see... Enterprise Alabama had a plaque placed to their plague. Some of the very things that you think are out to destroy you, God is producing in you something. I was at Glacier National Park last month and was looking over hundreds of thousands of acres that had been destroyed in wildfires just the year before. This was the first spring and summer things were beginning to grow again and We were talking to some of the people that were there and the rangers were telling us that the recovery that will come within the next few years will produce seven times more trees than what was lost. He said it required, the fire required a certain heat in order to take the seeds of those pines uh, that were there and melt the wax off of them so that they could grow. And he said the density that will come back from this is going to be substantially greater than what we lost. Maybe in the last week, or in the last month, or in the last year, a blaze burned through your life, burning up a lot of things that you had gotten used to. But consider consider that the density of the new growth that Christ wants to grow within you is going to be substantially greater than anything you feel that you have lost. Perhaps your experience will be like those lodgepole pines, and that the fire you're going through that you wish God would just put out or remove you from is actually burning off the wax so that what grows in you will be brand new and that you will give birth to something that you never dreamed was possible, but that God is working it out for your good. And lastly, God is for us. God is for us. Who's against us? Well, sin is against us. Satan is against us. Death is against us. Hell is against us. Sometimes circumstances... Sometimes people we've had relationships with, but never God. Never God. And Paul argues this, and I love the wording because he argues from the greater to the lesser when he says this. 
If God did not spare his own son, in other words, if God took the biggest hit to his own personal family, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, will he not also give us all things? In other words, if he's already given you the greatest gift, why do you think for one second that what you're in, you're alone in? Who therefore will bring any charge against those whom Christ has chosen? Who will condemn? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives us seven adversities which can separate us. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. And then, in a very unique twist and wording, he gives us six polarities that can separate us. When he says, death or life, angels or demons, present or future, powers, height and death, and anything else in God's creation. In other words, he says, and if I forgot anything... You need to know that there's nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing is going to separate us. Oftentimes we have this picture in our mind that God is a heavenly policeman just waiting, sitting on the side of the road of our life, waiting for us to go one mile an hour over the speed limit so that he can jump out behind us and embarrass us in front of everybody by ticketing us. We just think that he's, he's there making sure that we stay in the rules and and boy, if we don't, then he's right there to just take care of everything and that he's looking for us to misbehave. But I need you to understand that some of the things that you may be going through are to produce a birth of something in you. God loves us and is for us. I'm going to ask the worship team as they please come. And here's the way that God describes to us. I love this terminology, so please don't lose focus right now. He says that we are more than conquerors. Now, the term that we have three words, more than conquerors, is really one Greek word. It's made up of two segments, hyper and Nike. Hyper Nike is the word. And here's what they mean. Hyper means more than normal or way more than normal. And Nike means conqueror or winner. And so here's what, here's what Jesus, for those of you wearing Nike shoes, now you know what it means in Greek. He says, we who, we who are belonging to him are hyper Nike. Some of you think I'm going to make it to heaven and, and it's like a race that I'm just going to win by an eighth of an inch over Satan. And Jesus says, no, no. I want to give you encouragement for everyday life because what you don't see that I see is that you are hyper Nike. You are way more than conquerors. Whatever you're going through right now, you're going to win by a mile. The competition can't keep up with you. So when you're discouraged and you're depressed and you think everything is against you, you need to remember you're more than a conqueror. That the pains and the groaning that you're going through is not to produce death in you, is not to de defeat you. It is producing new life in you. Something is going to be born of this that will glorify God and that you will look back on forever and recognize, oh, hallelujah, I'm so glad I did not quit, but let the pressure press me against the Savior.